God, we are uh, thankful for the opportunity to gather this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be among your people. It's good to have a book in our hands and our laps and the pew backs in front of us that is so available. It's in our language. It has just gobs of truth about who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful to the time that we have together. We'll be obedient, that we'll be attentive, we'll be engaged, we'll be responsive. Lord, I pray that we will be engaged. Lord, you're so good. <laughs> so good. We love you. We uh, just look forward to our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> Turn to John chapter 17. prayer prayed on the eve of his crucifixion out loud thankfully when Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life that they know you the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, these 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that... The world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. <clears throat> I don't know how many times I've read that prayer by now, but I never cease to be overwhelmed and amazed with the prayer. 
The word that comes to mind is vast. It's like an ocean. It's a one-way sort of conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And when I read it, I'm overwhelmed with the complexity of it because it's lofty and diverse. I feel like a kid sitting in the back seat of the car listening to mom and dad have a very deep conversation. One that I'm just getting bits and pieces of. But instead of tuning out like a kid might do when mom and dad are having a deep conversation, I want us to tune in and make the effort to connect some dots. Make the effort to engage something that is deep and complex and enormous and vast. I need to admit to you that preaching through this has been a challenge and continues to be for me because the study is very difficult. But it sort of settles me to know that it's difficult and complex and vast and enormous since it's a conversation between God and God. If I could somehow make it tidy and put a little bow around it, it would just seem a little less divine. So there's something sort of comforting in knowing that it's so deep and so expansive. But I want us to engage the mystery and complexity of it as little kids sitting in the back seat who are hungry to know what mom and dad, ultimately God the Son and God the Father, are speaking of. I have a plan. The plan we've been engaging these last few weeks has been to unpack this chapter by petition or request. There are five petitions, five main petitions within the prayer. The first one we spent weeks on was a request for glory. The second one that we're going to consider this morning and the next two Sundays is a prayer for protection for his followers. Ironically, he's praying this on the eve of his crucifixion. That may give you some clue where we're going in the next couple weeks is to in some ways redevelop and redefine a biblical understanding of protection. The other petitions, just for your sake of seeing the big picture that we'll we'll engage in these next few weeks, will be a prayer for sanctification for his followers, a prayer for oneness in his followers, and a prayer that his followers will be with him forever. Today, we're going to consider the request for protection. The request is sort of developed in some ways beginning in verse 11. You start to get a tone of the request in verse 11. I am no longer in the world. He's speaking of as, as if it's already happened. Now, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. It's hours away. He's weeks away at that point. He's got three days before he rises again, and then he's going to walk the earth for a period of time. But then he's going to go to be at the Father's right hand. He's speaking right now in terms of the finality of it. It's imminent where he goes to be at the Father's right hand. And he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. He's speaking of the 11. And in some ways, since we know that he connects us to future believers, he's speaking of us. I'm no no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, Father, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. While Christ was with them, he kept them in the Father's name. He guarded them, and not one was lost except the one who was predestined for lostness. Those of you who struggle with predestination, man, you got to reckon with that. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he was lost. And here he asks the Father, Father, keep them in your name. It sounds like the prayer of one who is burdened with and burdened for the protection of those he's praying for. It sounds like one who has ownership of the outcome, responsibility for their fate. It sounds like care and concern to me, genuine care and concern for him to be praying this prayer on the eve of his cross. It sounds like the prayer, really, of a pastor for his people. Father, keep them in your name. 
Parents, if you want to know how to pray for your kids, how about let's start there. Father, keep Daniel, Evan, Luke, McGraw in your name. Sounds like the prayer of someone who loves those he's praying for. Keep them in your name. And the specific request for protection is in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, pay attention to the fact that he did not ask the Father to take them out of the world. He asked the Father to keep them from the evil one while they remain in the world. What unfolded in the months and years after this prayer for these 11 and these future followers that he's praying for makes you wonder first why he didn't ask the Father to take them out of the world. Why wouldn't he, knowing what they're going to face? And it makes you wonder, too, if the Father somehow wasn't paying attention when he asked for protection from the evil one. Or maybe his request was answered with a big fat no. Or maybe which is most likely is that we need a biblical understanding of protection. Which is where we're going this Sunday and the next two. Consider what happened to these 11 that he's praying for. We don't know what happened to every single one of them. But we know what happened to many of them or most of them. In the following months and years, these specific men that he's praying for would face severe persecution and every sort of trial and trouble. Every sort of persecution, slander, poverty, imprisonment, beatings, separation, isolation. They would be maligned. And they would eventually, most, we believe, all but one would be martyred. That is, murdered for their faith. Connect this prayer of protection to the outcome and you got to be scratching your head. He's praying for an ongoing presence, i.e. don't take them out of the world, and for ongoing protection, keep them from the evil one. He's praying that for men who will have severe trials, tribulations, and sufferings. Peter was crucified upside down, we believe. Maybe we use that word too much so we really don't connect to what that is, crucifixion. Being nailed to a piece of wood. I mean, it may be something that's just so common to us that we so hear it so often that we just kind of become numb to the gravity of it. Nailed to a piece of wood upside down. We believe that Andrew was crucified in a spread eagle position. The Scottish flag that has the white cross on it, that's a depiction of Andrew's, St. Andrew's cross. If you know what kept you alive on the cross, you realize how gruesome it would be to be crucified in a spread eagle position because your legs is what raised you up and down so you could breathe. So it's sort of like drowning while you're nailed to a piece of wood. These are the men Jesus prayed for. James was beheaded. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded. Thomas was speared to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was martyred in Egypt. Simon and Jude were martyred in Persian. Simon is believed to have been hacked to death. Really, if you're paying attention and you're thinking about connecting the dots, okay, he's praying for these specific guys on the eve of his cross, and you look at what happened to him, we got to scratch our head and go, wait a minute. <laughs> Do I even have any clue what protection means? Do I have any clue what he's praying for here? And these men, the men he prayed for, and ultimately those who would believe in him, we can only reconcile what we see him asking for and what unfolds with the need for a better understanding of protection. We're going to look at this in the next three weeks. This week, we're going to deal with first, why leave them there? Knowing what they're going to suffer... Why, if you love them, why leave them there? And then the next two weeks, we're going to deal with what protection isn't. And then the third Sunday, we'll deal with what protection was requested and what protection was granted for his disciples and for us. Today, the first thing we're going to deal with is why leave them here. 
Why didn't Christ ask the Father to take them out of the world? If you know your Old Testament, you know the story of Enoch. We don't know a whole lot about Enoch. We just know that he walked with God, and then one day he's no more. <laughs> like, what happened? He just, poof, disappeared and went on to be with God. Why couldn't Jesus ask for that for the eleven? Why wouldn't he ask that for us, that poof, we're gone to be with him? Why would he not ask that they be taken out of the world? They were given to him. They were his. So why protect his disciples while he's here with such care and ask for their continued protection, yet leave them here? We're going to answer that question right up front with these three words, and we're going to come back to it over the course of the next few minutes. These three words that you'll hear every person that we look at. It was necessary. (laughs) I wish I had something more cool for you, but that's all I got. It was necessary. We're going to look at three men in the next few minutes. Three men who asked to be taken out of the world. Turn to the book of Jonah. Three men who made a specific request To God, God, take me home. I think in the few minutes that we spend looking at these three guys, we can see why it was appropriate that he not take them out of the world, but leave them and ask for their protection from the evil one. The first dude is Jonah. Jonah, the grumpy and reluctant prophet. Grumpy pants, as if you know your veggie tales. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh to warn and preach. And Jonah makes every effort to avoid Nineveh. He gets on a ship, sails the opposite direction, faces a storm, is thrown overboard by the guys on the ship, swallowed by a whale, and is spit out on the seashore. I would say God spits him out on the seashore to go do his work. You know, Jonah is often portrayed as a real uncaring and unloving guy to be so reluctant to preach to the Ninevites. And you know, to some degree, maybe he was, but learning how gruesome the Ninevites were, that they committed some of the most atrocious crimes against humanity ever committed by mankind, it puts things in perspective. It would be sort of like somebody saying, man, I think you should go preach to Charles Manson, yet someone that Charles Manson killed is your family member. It'd be hard to stomach. Something in you wouldn't want them to get the good news. That's apparently what Jonah faced. I won't tell you what the Ninevites did or the crimes that they committed, but I will tell you that it will change your view of his reluctance. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is after Jonah finally makes it to Nineveh, finally preaches, the people repent. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I knew you would change their hearts. (laughs) And I didn't want Charles Manson to come to faith in Christ. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord... Please take my life from me. Please take me home because I'm just plain hacked. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's story 
is a tragic story. After preaching to the Ninevites, he goes and finds a tree, sits underneath it. God appoints a worm and a scorching wind to destroy Jonah's shade. And Jonah's more upset about the tree's death than the potential death of thousands upon thousands of people. And he asks to die. And God did not remove him from this trouble. God did not grant his request. When I was a kid, there used to be these commercials on TV, and I bet some of you know the commercial I'm talking about. They may have to have a version of it. I don't know. Where this woman's had a hard day. You know, she's tending to the kids and, you know, running the kids around to soccer ball or whatever, football or whatever, practice one or another, Boy Scouts or something. And she comes home and she says, Calgon, take me away. Anybody ever seen that commercial? I was going to use this as a reference, and I realized that I need to qualify it and explain what it was. He asked for Calgon and instead got an east wind and a worm. He asked to be beamed up, but God was not done with Jonah. Now, we don't know what happened to Jonah. Of the three men, this is the least focused. We just know that he wasn't taken home. So maybe he went back to work prophesying. Maybe he rallied. All we know is that God did not take him out of the world, so it must have been necessary that he remain because he is left in the world. Now, with Elijah, things begin to come into view. Turn to 1 Kings. Things begin to come into focus. <clears throat> 1 Kings, we meet a guy named Elijah. We're going to look in verse 19, or chapter 19, but in, verse, or in chapter 17 is where we first meet Elijah. We don't have a whole lot of introduction for him. Really, in fact, we don't have any. All we know is that Elijah the Tishbite shows up. And Elijah the Tishbite prophesies a drought to a king named Ahab, a bad king. Ahab had a wife, too, named Jezebel, and she was really bad news. Elijah prophesied that it would not rain, and for three years it didn't rain, and then comes the showdown at Mount Carmel. Elijah tells them to have the 450 prophets of Baal come out, and to have the 400 prophets of Asherah come out, and they're going to have a showdown at Carmel. After the prophets make complete fools of themselves, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven that consumes not only his sacrifice, but laps up the water around the altar. Then he calls single-handedly. He calls down fire. Whoosh, it, it just devours his sacrifice. Then he single-handedly whips all the prophets at the brook of Kishon. And then he calls for rain, sends his servant out to go look for a cloud. He sees a little bitty fist-sized cloud. And then later on, rain comes down. Whoosh. And then Elijah outruns Ahab to Jezreel, 17 miles He's on foot, Ahab's in a chariot. And after all of that, Elijah is afraid of Jezebel. Look at chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. It's just a shocker if you really think about it. Elijah, what are you doing being afraid? You got nothing to fear. And he arose and ran for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Something about sitting under trees. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. He runs for his life, afraid of Jezebel, finds a broom tree, and asks to die. And just like Jonah, God did not grant his request. He was not taken out of the world, for God, we will see clearly in a moment, had a purpose for him yet unfulfilled. It seems he had prophecies yet to prophesy. It seems he had a servant named Elisha yet to raise up. Turn over a few chapters to chapter 21. Chapter 21. 
beginning in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Let's just stop right there and say that if, Tish, if, if Elijah the Tishbite had been taken home, he wouldn't have been there to receive this word. Word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Hmm. Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. The next verses are a shocker, really, for Ahab. For me, at this point, reading about Ahab. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, I'm expecting him to go, yeah, right. I mean, he hadn't repented yet. Yeah, right, Elijah. You're a chump, and I'm going to try and kill you yet again. But it says he heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I wonder if Ahab is thinking, I'm glad you didn't take me home. I'm glad you didn't take me out because Ahab yet had yet to repent. I'm glad you didn't do that. Because Ahab has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon the house. It's a shocker how Ahab repented. And I'm thankful that God didn't take Elijah home. Elijah had truth yet to speak. It wasn't time for him to go home. Later, he shares prophecy about Ahaziah, Ahab's son, that comes true. And later he raises up Elisha, Elijah's servant. He had work yet to do. Though in his trouble he asked to be taken home, it was necessary that he remain. He was left for a purpose. It wasn't time to go home yet. Tomorrow's prophet depended on him being here. Tomorrow's prophecy depended on him being there to speak it. And then and only then in the next chapter, it says he's taken home with horses and chariots of fire on God's timing, on God's terms. Moses is where things come into the most clear picture. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Moses was a man who shouldn't have been. He's a man that should have been murdered with the rest of the Israelite boys. But Moses, like a little bitty Noah, is put in a little bitty ark and survives a little bitty watery ordeal to step out on dry, crunching ground. A man who survives an unlikely, through an unlikely story, is called to lead his people out of Egypt. A man our Bibles tell us is the most humble man on the face of the earth who apparently wasn't a very good speaker or communicator is called to lead his people out of Egypt. By the time we get to Numbers chapter 11, God has administered the plagues, the mighty acts of judgment, these crazy things that have happened. He's walled up the water of the Red Sea so Israel could walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. He's drowned the army of Egypt. By this point, he's given the law at Sinai as Sinai quakes. By this point, he's provided manna from heaven. 
for a grumbling yet hungry Israel. By this point, the nation of Israel had worshipped a golden calf. By this point, God had given instructions for the tabernacle and for the sacrificial system. By this point, they had built the tabernacle and had begun worshiping there. By this point, they had celebrated their first Passover, remembering the night that they heard the wind and wing of the destroyer and were delivered from Egypt with the cries of the Egyptian households in the background. By this point, they're in their second year since leaving Egypt. And finally, they depart Sinai with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in Numbers chapter 11, the people complain about their, shocker, misfortunes. They complain about their misfortunes. Let's look at it. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Can you imagine that? The white-hot holy anger of the Lord just kind of laps up whole sections of the camp. What happened to the east side of the camp? I don't know. God got mad and fire just lapped it up. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. <laughs> Seemed like Moses would have said, let's go ahead and lap up the rest of them. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong, one of the Psalms says, a wanton craving. To me, it's just a shocker that there even is any rabble at this point. They still have the dirt of the bottom of the Red Sea on their shoes. Their stomachs are, are digesting dinner that drops from heaven. They're drinking sweet water. They've seen Sinai quake. They've seen the plagues. How could there be a rabble? But yet the rabble that was among them had a strong and wanton craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. And forget about the chains and the bricks and the whips. We remember the fish. They cost nothing. And oh, the cucumbers and mm, the melons. <sighs> the melons and the leeks and the onions and oh, that garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this dinner from the sky to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it, dinner from the sky. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses finally is displeased. The most humble man on the face of the earth is finally says, man, I've had it. I can't take this lot anymore. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to, to all this people? For they weep before me. And say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Just go ahead and take me home. I'm ready to come home. It's better to be with you. I'm tuckered. If I find favor in your sight, just kill me at once that I may not see my wretchedness. The only thing missing in this account is a tree. 
I wonder if there was a tree nearby. Maybe he was somehow sitting under the tree, the, the shade of it. Moses is two years into this thing, and he's had it with his people. He's done with them. He's tuckered. They're a grumbling lot, discontent with wanton and strong cravings. And it's totally understandable. He wants to go home. Who wants his job? The dirt is on their sandals. Dinner from heaven is in their bellies. And they complain of their many misfortunes. Yet God didn't take him home. The first thing God did is he gave them elders. <laughs> I love that. The first thing he did so that he didn't quit. Look at what it says now. He gave them elders. Plural leadership is beautiful. But the second thing he did, he did not take him out of the world because he had work to do. Moses had yet to lead his people through the wilderness for the next 38 years. Moses had yet to intercede for this motley crew. He had yet, just look in the next chapter, to intercede for Miriam. In chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? We don't need Moses. And as a result of this, Miriam got leprosy. And a few verses later in verse 13, and Moses cried to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. Moses had yet to intercede for the undeserving. Look at chapter 14. We're going to look at this chapter because this is just a beautiful picture of it. And imagine this chapter without Moses. This is after the report of the giants in the land. Eek. The spies go into the promised land. They come back all but Joshua and Caleb and say, there's giants there. We can't take this land. And Joshua and Caleb say, no, man, we can whip them. And all the congregation raised a loud cry. They're giants. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our wee ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. (gasps) What a stiff-necked, hard-to-lead people. Now they're looking for a replacement. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Oh, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they're like bread. To us. Man, we could eat them. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Just when you think Israel couldn't get any worse, let's stone the guys who are saying, let's do what God told us to go do. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses, I'm glad he didn't take him out. But Moses said to the Lord, it's sort of like Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Moses said to the Lord, Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. If you destroy this people and don't do what you said you were going to do, then the Egyptians will hear of it for you brought this people in your might from among them. And they'll tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard of you, O Lord. 
in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who've heard of your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that you swore to give them, that he's killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember your name, God? Remember when you revealed yourself to me as I saw the backside fleeting glimpse of your glory as you stuck me in the cleft of a rock? Remember, God, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You're forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. I'm thankful he didn't take Moses out because Moses had a purpose of mediation for an unlikely, undeserving people. I'm glad he wasn't taken out. What would chapter 14 be? What happens to Israel without this mediator interceding and saying, please spare this people? Because of Moses' prayer, God made a way for this people to yet enter the promised land as the next generation was given permission to enter through Moses' request, God made a way for Israel to survive. He didn't take Moses out of the world because Moses had yet later to confront Korah and his rebellion. Moses had yet to pray for the people and to make a bronze serpent so that they might live when they're bit by poisonous snakes. Moses had yet to lead his people to victory over Arad, over King Sihon, over King Og. Moses had yet to lead his people in offerings. Moses had yet to lead his people to defeat the Midianites. He had yet to, mount, to climb Mount Nebo, an old man in the 40th year since they left Egypt to hear and record the sweet book of Deuteronomy. Moses had yet to die on a mount so that his people might enter the promised land. I hope you're seeing that picture. He had yet to die on Nebo so that a remnant, the next generation, could enter the promised land. Moses had work to do. Thank you for not taking him out of the world. Had God taken him out of the world, he would not have walked with a stiff-necked, undeserving people, ultimately giving his life for them, giving us a beautiful and illuminating picture of what Christ has done for us. It was necessary. See it? The future of a people was dependent upon it. All three of these men faced trouble. Scott ended the message last week with the picture of Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about tomorrow, for today has its share of trouble. And pointed out that Jesus didn't say, I'm going to take that trouble away. Trouble is sure. Trouble is imminent. And these men, all three, walked in trouble. Jonah, the grumpy prophet, asked to die out of his grumpiness. Elijah asked to die out of his despondency. Moses asked to die instead of dealing with a grumbling Israel. And God says, nope, not yet. It is necessary that you remain. I wonder if the apostles, as they faced severe suffering, severe trial, severe loss and pain, if they would remember him saying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, he said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that's far better. I think Jonah and Elijah and Moses would agree. 
Paul says to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It was necessary that Elijah remain. It was necessary that Moses remain. It was necessary that Paul remain in the world for God had plans and purpose for them. Now, we've done the work to get the goods. What does this mean to us? The passage in this prayer in John chapter 17 has really encouraged me. Listen to these words. It's answered a question for me too. Why pray it out loud? Jesus says, but now I'm coming to you and these things as in, i.e., this prayer, I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He didn't have to pray this prayer out loud for it to be effectual. The prayer is going to have a yield because it's the prayer of the ultimate righteous man, so it will availeth much, right? So why did he pray it out loud? So it would be joy instruction that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It will be joy instruction as they face severe trial, severe suffering, and they remember that he prayed out loud, I don't ask that they be removed from the world. The application is that there is joy in finding and walking in purpose. There is joy in walking what he has ordained for you. There's joy in knowing that you'll be here no longer than you need to be and no sooner than you need to go. There's joy in knowing that he'll take you home only when your job is done. There's joy that will come in connecting with purpose and in knowing that he's the designer with a plan for your days. We've seen that at Crosspoint. I'm seeing people that are experiencing joy. I'm seeing people like the Titus ladies experiencing joy as they teach younger women to love their husbands. I'm seeing purpose, and I'm thankful God has not taken any of the Titus ladies home. I'm glad they're still in the world to engage younger women and teach them to love their wives or love their husbands. I'm seeing purpose in young shepherds who are seeing for the first time that they have a purpose in raising up their children and their family, in loving their wives as Christ loved the church, to show their children what the gospel looks like. Man, there's joy in that. I'm glad that he hadn't taken the shepherds out of the world. I'm glad they're here to show their families what Christ looks like. And they're experiencing joy as they do it. I'm seeing joy in deacons. Deaconing, a sweet, simple, quiet work of deaconing. I'm seeing joy as men who are coming into their purpose. Man, there's joy in walking in purpose. What you need to understand is that you're somebody's Moses. Shepherds, fathers, single mothers, you're a Moses for a little bitty family, a little micro people. You're you're charged with giving your family a message from God and leading them on the journey of faith. You're equipped for it each week. And you're going to find joy in doing that. I'm glad he's left you here to do that. You're somebody's Moses. You're somebody's Elijah. You're somebody's Paul. Or you're supposed to be. And it's necessary that you remain to do the work God's called you to do. And you'll find complete joy in doing what you were made for. And guess what? God won't let you get away with finding joy not doing it. You'll find a sad replacement, snippets. But you'll find real joy in doing what you've been designed to do. You're left for a purpose like Elijah was, like Moses was, like Paul was, like the disciples were. The other thing that I think is a sweet ministry An application point is there's joy in trusting God's timing. The holidays are 
in a lot of ways, a time of pain for those who are remembering those who are no longer with us. There's joy in knowing that they weren't taken too soon. There's no, t- no such thing as that. And they weren't taken too late. But that somehow, whoever they were, whatever their situation was, that God's purpose was fulfilled in them. There's a joy in knowing that. Knowing that God is a God that has plans for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This good God took them out of the world on his terms and his timing. There's got to be joy in that. He didn't ask that we'd be taken out of the world in this daily trouble, but that we'd be protected from the evil one till our work is done. Find joy in having a purpose and in walking in it. Find joy in knowing If a loved one has gone on before you that God appointed his or her days. He has a plan for glory and we're protected in that plan. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful that there's someone and that someone specifically being you at the helm. And I'm thankful that you have a plan for glory in leaving your people in the world. Lord, I pray for shepherds in this room. I pray for um, Titus ladies. I pray for wives. I pray for kids. I pray for young people. I pray really for all of us that, that we can connect to our purpose, that we can look for our purpose, and that we can walk in that purpose. And that we can walk fearlessly knowing that our days won't end a moment too soon. Not a moment too late. But that we'll be with you in your time. On your schedule. When your purpose has been completed in and through us. Lord, I'm thankful for purpose. I'm thankful that this life isn't just a, a grind. We're not just living it with no purpose or direction, but that we, it actually has meaning and that we are about something. Lord, I pray this morning as we considered Moses and Elijah and Jonah and Paul and the disciples that we can be encouraged to connect to our purpose. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take the supper together. I want to share a passage with you from John chapter 12 before we take this meal. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There are seven main miracles in the book of John. And John recorded these things for a purpose. It says later in the book that he's written these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we may have life in his name. They have purpose. And every single one of these miracles in the book of John has a face value awe. As you look at someone raised from the dead or water turned to wine, you're like, shazam, it's amazing. Face value greatness. But then every single one of them has a deeper greatness that would make you just sing. And him raising Lazarus from the dead, that's awesome. If you're like Mary or Martha, hey, we got our brother back, yay. But for those of us 2,000 years later who are looking at Lazarus, we see the gospel displayed there where a man is dead and decaying, the uber helpless. The picture of Ephesians chapter 2 being dead in your trespasses and sins. He's, I don't know, three or four days dead by the time Jesus raised him from the dead. So dead that one of the sisters said, he, he tells him to roll the stone away. And, and he says, well, surely he stinketh by this time. Man, Lazarus is the picture of us. And here in chapter 12, the chapter after he's raised from the dead. Here he is in Bethany in chapter 12, verse 2. It says, they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. 
There's got to be a beauty in seeing that connection. The once dead, the once decaying, the once stinking is now reclining with Christ at table. That's what the supper is for us every single week. It's the scandal that we're not still dead, but that we're raised not only to life, but we're raised to dine with the victor. That's the shocker of the gospel. Every time we take that supper, we need to connect to a new picture of that, or we need to connect to a picture newly like that one, like it's your first time to ever hear that, where your heart sings and says, thank goodness that the gospel is able to call past the obstacle that no one else and nothing else can call past, where Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he says, Lazarus, come eat. That's what he does in the supper. If you connect to that in these next few minutes and you enjoy that as we take this supper together, that's called worship. We got to go see a movie last night that I encourage. If you're a big C.S. Lewis fan, you may not be happy with it. Uh, if you're one of those that always walks out of a movie and says, ah, the book was better. But The Voyage of the Dawn Treader has just come out. We watched it together as a family yesterday. And there was a point in the movie that I nearly bust out in tears. Daniel was sitting to the left of me and Luke was sitting to the right, so I had to keep my composure, you know. But some of y'all may know the story. There's this nephew, a pesky little nephew named Eustace. He is proud. He's annoying, crazy, seriously annoying. He's the nephew of Lucy and Edmund. And he gets dragged into this Narnian story with them because he's there in the room when the room floods. You'll have to see the movie. I don't think this is a um, story. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember what that's called. Are you? <coughs> spoiler alert. It's not a spoiler alert. Eustace gets dragged into the story. Maybe it is. But I don't care. A sermon's more important than that. <laughs> Maybe it is a spoiler alert. Well, Eustace actually finds this ravine that's full of gold on one of these islands that they visit. He walks into this ravine and he's studying this gold and he's trying to box it all up. And, and the, the crew comes and finds him. The other guys come and find him and all they find is clothes and they're smoking. And what happened is he's, he's lured into a dragon's lair and he actually becomes a dragon. And a good part of the story, now in, in, in the book, he's only a dragon for a day. In the story, it seems that he's a dragon for a longer period of time. And he's changed back to a boy by Aslan later in the story. Aslan is the picture of Christ in the story. And Lucy and um, uh, Edmund ask him what it was like to be changed back by Aslan. And I enjoyed his words even there in the movie. The words in the movie were basically along the lines of... um, As hard as I tried, I couldn't change myself, but he changed me, and it kind of hurt. The words in the book, I'll, I'll share with you kind of an excerpt and a little editorial. That night, a lion, this would be Aslan, comes to Eustace telling him to undress out of his dragonness, and Eustace tries to scratch at his skin. At first it seems to work as the scales slip off like a banana peel. But just as soon as Eustace discovers that another layer of dragon skin lies beneath the first. It'd be like Lazarus ripping at his grave cloths. He's still dead. In despair, Eustace realizes he cannot cure himself. He isn't merely wearing a dragon suit. He is a dragon. But wonders never cease. There is no magic even in Narnia, but there are miracles. Eustace via Lewis later describes what happened next. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. That very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Lewis tells truth. 
Conversion begins only when I recognize that I cannot change my skin. There's no self-help. There's no extreme soul makeover. I can never cure myself. Only if and only when I surrender to the one who rips deep the fibers of our dragoness can I ever hope to be the boy, the man I was created to become. I am used to scrub then and now. Let's dine together, reclining with Christ. Fellow Lazari and Eustaces enjoying his finished work. Take an eat. Once dead and decaying, called to life, amazing enough, but then called to dine. Let's dine with him together. I want to encourage you to do something as we uh, sing this last song. We have our offertory time as well. But I encourage you to be prayerful about finding and connecting with your purpose. We're going to dismiss afterwards. I'm going to, I have a brief announcement at the end of the morning. But I want as part of our worship time, as part of our offering, to connect with the Lord. I offer up my purpose, whatever that might be. I pray that you'll show it to me that I can walk in it faithfully. Knowing that I wasn't put here just to fall through life, but I was put here for as, as a design for a reason. You're somebody's Moses, somebody's Elijah, somebody's Paul. And maybe a really micro version of that, but that's okay. Man, the journey of faith is made up of little micro opportunities and micro people being faithful in that opportunity. Let's continue to worship. If I was to share an announcement that we had uh, on Wednesday nights, we'd have a study where you could find your purpose. I bet a bunch of you'd come to that. I want to let you know that what we do every Sunday when we gather like this and on Wednesday nights, that's what that is. <laughs> we don't have to have a special little thing with a name on it. I know that's cool because you can kind of, it has a beginning and an end. You think, okay, in eight weeks, I can find my purpose, man. That's cool. Man, I, that's appealing to me too. Just like it's appealing to put a nice tidy bow on John chapter 17. But that's like trying to put a nice tidy bow on knowing my wife. Eight weeks to knowing Christy. Isn't that lame? God says, man, we've been, you know, just give me eight weeks and I'll know all I need to ever know about Christy. What? It's about the relationship. So it's about this thing that we're doing each week. This thing that, that this journey that we're on as you're engaging this word and this diet each week. That's where you come to know your purpose. That's where you come to know what you're made for. You find it in small group as you bump into other people and they affirm things that you're doing or encourage you in things that you're not doing. It's unimpressive. As a sermon was recently titled, unimpressive. But it's what God has ordained. If I said, okay, in the next few weeks, I'm going to preach on joy as a reason for the season. Christmas series on joy. There'd be people like, man, cool Christmas sermons. I'm not going to do that. Because John chapter 17 was preached, it was prayed out loud as joy instruction. So we're going to just kind of keep on engaging it. And we're going to find the joy of purpose and the joy in trial, the joy in today's trouble, the joy in being left here, and the joy in knowing that we'll go home when he's ordained it and designed it and planned it. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. Man, that's joy enough for me. I don't need a special little class. We're getting it each week. I encourage you to engage it. If you walk out of here and brain dump this and don't engage this over the course of the week, it's like somebody giving you some medicine that you don't go home and take. You go see a doctor, Doc, I'm messed up. I need some medicine. He says, okay, here's some medicine. And you go put it in the cabinet. It's not going to help you. I encourage you to engage this in community. Small group is a way to do it. It's not the only way, but it is a way to do it. Small groups may have different schedules over the course of the holidays. So if each small group does, then, you know, so be it. But it's something that we do over the course of the year. And we engage each other intentionally as the people of God. So I encourage you to be part of that. Now, Wednesday nights over the holidays, we're not meeting.
So uh, if you come up here on Wednesday night, the building will be locked up, and folks that would be teaching and stuff, they'll be off spending time with their families. So I encourage you to do the same. Be intentional about engaging your families or engaging neighbors or friends that don't know the Lord or friends that do. Just be intentional about making the most use of your time and uh, this time away to to enjoy him in these next few weeks. Um, one other announcement for children's workers. Uh, our, I guess, uh, Tiffany and Annie have sent out some information to y'all for some uh, checks, background checks and things like that. This is a chance over these, these few weeks as we slow down a little bit for us to get caught up on some things like that. So if you've gotten a, a notice about something like that, please be responsive and, and uh, get that back, which is pretty much the whole church. So and we don't have any little special workers. That We're all workers. So y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Thanks for being here this morning, part two next week, part three the week after that, um, on protection, understanding what God's protection is. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving the proud and annoying, loving the dead and raising them to life, for loving the likes of Israel, for ordaining and appointing a mediator, for a bunch of stiff-necked grumblers. Lord, I'm thankful for these pictures that you've given us over the gospel story of Christ where we can enjoy what he's done more. Lord, we enjoyed our time together this morning. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.